Welcome, if you're visiting with us, we're delighted to have you here this morning. And if you would, turn back once again to the book of Hosea. We'll we'll pull out of the book of Revelation this morning. I want to look at a text that is most encouraging to any believer. And that is found in the second chapter, verse 19 and 20. And the Word of God reads, Hosea 2, verse 19. This is the Lord speaking through His servant, Hosea. And I, says the Lord, will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. This ends the reading of our text this morning. I pray that the Lord will impress it upon our hearts, that it may bless you richly. Before we look at it, I want to go back to 1987, tell you a story about a friend of mine, a female friend, introduced me to her boyfriend, and this boyfriend was 10 years her senior. He was well-established. He, uh, at the time I knew him, uh, bought her extravagant gifts, would take her on luxurious vacations, would often uh, take off from Montgomery Field in his private plane to his bungalow in the beaches of Mexico. This went on for at least five years that I am aware of. She introduced this man to her brothers, to her parents, to friends such as myself. He was a very likable guy. He was a talented guy, interesting guy. And then one day, his brother was in a severe auto accident. It was fatal. So they had a funeral, a memorial service for his brother. And as his girlfriend's parents and brothers and friends approached this man sitting in the front row of the memorial service to give them their condolences and the loss of their brother, noticed that he was sitting next to a woman they've never met before, along with a line of kids. He was a married man with a family. We didn't know about it. The only ones that knew about it, other than close friends, I'm sure, uh, were his wife... (laughs) and his lover. He was a covenant breaker. He was a vow breaker. He was an apostate runaway husband, if you will. The story before us this morning is one of adultery, of apostasy, and idolatry. And what's in view here is the spiritual apostasy of the children of Israel. But even greater than that is God's commitment to go after her. I didn't get the sign right. Are we on? It's not working. Hello? 
Boy, you talk about breaking the flow of things. Hello? Test? Can you hear me? You can hear me through this. Okay, thank you, man. That was my bad. <laughs> Greater than this adulter- uh, adulterous harlot who's on the run is a loving, merciful God who goes after her to woo her back to himself. What's in view here is the eternal covenant commitment of God towards a straying, wandering, adulterous people. The key verse for us this morning that kind of keeps this whole book together is chapter 3, verse 1. that reads, God instructs Hosea, Go again. Love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress. Now, Hosea had already been chosen, commanded by God, to go and marry a woman who would become a professional prostitute. She wasn't at the time a prostitute, but God, in his sovereign will and purpose, orders him to go marry this woman. We see that in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking Yahweh. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, prophets of God in the Old Testament, as you know, were often called to do very bizarre um, things. Ezekiel did some bizarre things as ordered by God. Um, as an object lesson to the people of God. And this extreme object lesson was to reveal the fact that God's people had become a harlot. God says, although my bride has been unfaithful to me, I nevertheless have remained married. I have tolerated their infidelity, but now is the time of judgment. And then through their firstborn son, God predicts the military defeat of Israel. They give birth to a son named Jezreel, which means God will scatter, or God will sow. Notice verse 4. The Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then Gomer gives birth to a daughter where God says, I want you to name her Lohurama, which means no mercy. And when she is weaned, she conceived another son, and his name was Lo-am-I, meaning not my people. Notice verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So God is saying, you Israel, who I've called to be my covenant people, marrying you in the wilderness, leading you out of Egypt, 
I called you to be a light to the nations, but now you're not my people. I will show you no mercy. Notice, he continues in chapter 4, or 2 rather, verse 4. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Verse 9, therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And I will, now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to all her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees. Remember when the spies were called to go into the promised land, the uh, land flowing with milk and honey? Uh, What did they see in abundance? Vineyards and fig trees. God says, I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. Verse 13, and I will punish her for her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. At this point, things seem hopeless. I mean, this is a punishable people. This seems at this point, <clears throat> excuse me, to be a doomed people. But notice, Chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. That means to woo her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Verse 16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. Verse 19. And here's our text. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know Yahweh. You shall know the Lord. Beloved, Hosea is a storied presentation of the gospel. What's before you is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a story of sin and grace. It's an account of forsaking and forgiving. It's a story that illustrates us as great sinners, but God as an even greater Savior. So the story here is told in a way that contrasts the sinful, idolatrous heart of man and the gracious, loving good of Almighty God. God is forever truthful. Israel, continually deceitful. God is a covenant maker. Israel is a covenant breaker. God is a committed husband. Israel is a wandering whore. 
Now, we're greatly mistaken this morning, beloved, if we read this story and conclude, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like wandering Israel, let alone Gomer. You don't want to think that way. Because this story serves as a mirror. This is our mirror. And as we look into this mirror, our own spiritual rebellion and idolatry and adulterous acts against God is revealed. We are the unfaithful bride. We are the wandering harlot. We are Gomer. We are idol worshipers. It was John Kelvin who said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. And this, beloved, is a story of how God, a God of great expenditure, pursues sin-ridden fugitives like Gomer, like Israel, like me, and like you. This is covenant love. God calls Hosea to keep on loving Gomer even as she continues to run into the arms of her lovers. That's the picture. With the same kind of love that God is showing Israel, who keeps turning to the bales, he says, go after her. Baal was a false god that uh, the people believed produced crop for the people and fertility of the people. And the mention of raisin cakes here in chapter 3, verse 1, it seems very odd, and that's the point. Because her love was oddly misplaced. And typically what would occur here is they would, they would eat these raisin cakes and these idolatrous ceremonies as a kind of aphrodisiac, of all things. And the point is this, no matter what she tells herself, she does not love Almighty God. She loves Baal. She loves her lover, she is an adulteress. Ray Ortland comments on this, and he says this, quote, The nation here is like a woman married to a king who leaves her royal husband in the palace only to go drinking with some good-for-nothing in the bars, end quote. So the apostasy here of the children of Israel has been recorded for our learning. For just as they were prone to wander, beloved, so are we prone to wander. We sing it once a month at least. In the, meth- in the methods in which God used here to bring Israel back to himself, he uses to this very day those very same methods for us, his people, at this moment. And you'll be greatly encouraged to see what they are this morning. Israel's heart went off and committed adultery with other gods. They followed the lust of their heart. Yet the Lord insists, I will go after her. I will woo her to myself by way of my love. I am going to marry them. I'm committed to them. Notice here the personal pronoun. You, verse 19, I will betroth you to me. Intimate terms. No longer one large group of people. Very personal. He's saying, you've divorced me, but I will never divorce you. Their heart has gone astray. Commitment to these people has wavered time and time again. Covenant has been broken. Covenant was conditional in the Old Testament. 
Remember Deuteronomy 28? You do this and you'll be blessed. You don't do this, you'll be cursed. But even so, he says here, I will betroth you to me. Now, betrothal is, is engagement, and you folks that are engaged are really betrothed to one another. Um, in the Old Testament, families would betroth their son to another family's daughter. They'd be engaged at a very young age. And in the eyes of the law, they were legally married. And the only thing left in the marriage vow and that commitment was consummation and cohabitation, which took place after the ceremony. And typically, the husband would bring the father of the bride a dowry, a gift. In other words, a bride price. He's saying, in essence, here's my price for your daughter. Here's the price that I provide for my bride. So this was an expression of commitment, one of sincerity. It often came at a very high price, usually made up of different kinds of jewelry that would be given to the father for this lovely bride. So typically a man would be losing everything if he walked away from the engagement. How many people have been engaged two, three times? I've been engaged. Well, what happened? Well, he walked away or I walked away. Not here. He's saying, I come with proof of my commitment. That's what the groom says. This is a confirmation of my covenant to marry your daughter. What we see here is God's price for his bride. This is God's dowry. The Lord says, I betroth you to me with a six-sided dowry. Saying essentially, let's start over. Let's start afresh. Though you are a whore, I will bring you to myself and view you as though you were a pure virgin. You can be a virgin bride to me once again. We can get back to what we enjoyed in the beginning. So he uses the word betrothal here three times. And this is like writing in bold capital letters. I betroth you, I betroth you, I betroth you. I will secure you to me. You know, maybe you're here today. You've wandered far from him. And you say, I am Gomer. Big, bold, capital letters. I am Gomer. Can I ever get back to the place that I once was at with him? Can I ever experience that love relationship? Can I ever experience the zeal, the fire, uh, the reciprocal love that I experienced every day, which has been gone for so long? Can I ever get there again? Or is Christianity just this diminishing love affair that starts out on this mountain and you end up in this valley and you dwell there the rest of your life? God says no. It doesn't have to be like that. You can get back that enthusiasm of a first love kind of relationship. I mean, don't raise your hand, but how many of you, when you first came to Christ, there was this zeal. You were on fire for Christ, and now that love just wanes. I mean, Israel's honeymoon years were long gone at this point. From the time they came out of Egypt, led out of Egypt into the wilderness, that great honeymoon time being delivered by Almighty God, well, he's determined to make himself loved once again by his wandering, adulterous people. I want you to notice this six-element bride price. That's our focus this morning. It's outlined for you 
in your bulletin. I want you to notice first this vow of foreverness. This is an eternal commitment in contrast to something brief, temporal, conditional. You know, sign this prenuptial and we're good. No, this is unconditional. It's forever. This is eternal. So from Israel's side or from our side as a people of God, spiritual Israel, we're very temperamental, are we not? We're kind of on again, off again with God. We start, we get, begin to move, we slow down, we stop, we whine, we, we complain, we run hot, we run cold, and then we're in the valley of indifference, lukewarmness. We're fickle-minded. Can I get an amen on that? But all the while, he says, I betrothed you to me forever. So from his side of the covenant, there is no starting, there is no stopping, there's no slowing down, there's no waning, there's no on again, off again kind of love affair. It's forever. He's saying, basically, I'm not going to let you go. I cannot, I will not, I will never think about letting you go. Those who are in Christ cannot be snatched out of his hand. You cannot apostatize if you're truly in Christ. If you are born again, regenerated, you cannot walk away from the faith. You cannot proclaim another God as God. You cannot proclaim other ways plus Jesus is God. You can't. Because of this covenant, you cannot apostatize. Oh, you may flounder. You may end up in the mud. You may even smell like an unbeliever sometimes. We may appear to be an unsaved people at times, but he says, my covenant is forever. There's no indifference or vacillating with him. I betroth you to me. So what does this do to the question on any given day that we can throw up there to God saying, I can't keep going. I don't feel like I can keep going, right? This uh, friend of mine wrote me a letter about a year ago, and she gave me permission to share this. She wrote this, quote, I don't study enough, I don't love enough, I don't contribute enough, I don't pray enough, and I don't believe enough. In my worldly thinking, it's, thank goodness God is the only one who knows my thoughts as if that's okay. Just so long as the guy in the car in front of me doesn't know that I secretly want to rear-end him to the moon, (laughs) or the sister in my study group who really irks me. I realize the fragility of our daily human lives, yet also I realize and understand the complexity and enormity of our oncoming eternity. So why am I troubled? Because I also realize the human nature of things and how as much as I like to think I'm learning, growing, stretching, reaching into the word, the reality is that sin is in fact crouching at my door. I do not want to be consumed, yet I see that even the best, most scholarly, most reluctant sinners are just a nod away from deciding to go the way of the world. End quote. And you know what? She's dead on right. But by the grace of God, there go I. But by the grace of God, we would apostatize. So when we ask what if, or what about when I, what if I 
do this again and, and, and I was so crushed. Remember, beloved, it's what he initiates. It's what he promises and what he promises and what he provides he also sustains. It's forever. He will finish that which he has begun. Started is just as good. So he says here, here's the bride price, it's forever, which wipes out all of the what-ifs. For those who are in him. For those who are part of this covenant. So this dowry then, beloved, begins with that which makes the, all the others possible. None of the other elements of this dowry are possible without the first one, which is everlasting. Foreverness. So the Lord emphasizes again this new marriage between him and his people. It's permanent. Vow number two. It's a vow of righteousness. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness. Now, here in the context of encouragement, acquittal and acceptance, he's saying, I know where you've been. I know what you've done. I know what you think. I know who you've been with. I know your history. I know you better than you know you. I know your motives behind what you do. I know the idols that you've adulterized yourself with, but I forgive you and I accept you. He has provided acquittal. He has provided righteousness. You see? Which is only possible through Christ, whose righteousness has been imputed to those who are part of the covenant. Whose righteousness has been placed upon the account of those who believe by faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. That's definitely one meaning of this righteousness. But there's also another. What this could also be conveying here is a term that speaks not just of your position in Christ, that's positional righteousness, regardless of what you do or don't do, if you're in Christ, you're righteous in the sight of God. This also, I believe, has to do with conduct. This is an actual lived-out righteousness. It's like the whole armor of God, right? You're told to put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's not imputed righteousness. That's not positional righteousness. That's practical righteousness that works itself out through those who are positionally righteous. You can be what you are, in other words. You're enabled to do and to be all that he has made you to be in Christ. Forgiven, cleansed, washed, right. So he's saying here, I will keep the standard myself and I will see to it that you will also. Remember Ezekiel? You remember when, when uh, Nicodemus actually came to Jesus? Jesus said, most surely I say to you, unless you're born again, you won't inherit the kingdom. How can a man my age be born again? Do I enter through my mother's womb a second time? And Jesus goes on basically to cite this passage here from Ezekiel. I, the Lord says, will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will what? Cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, this is the great hope we have in Christ. He did it all and then enables us to do likewise. 
So at the heart of it, this is the husband saying, wherever, beloved, you fall short, I'll fill in the gaps. I've already paved the way, and I provide you the way, and when you fail and when you falter, I'll lift you up, I'll fill in, I'll make it happen. You have nothing to fear. Why? Because we are now what? When you're married, you become one. That's a union. You can't mess up a union, a one-way covenantal promise. How can you mess that up? You're either in Christ or you're not. The union is everlasting. The only thing we can mess up is the communion. You know, it would be miserable if all we ever heard God say, you haven't done this. Or like my friend's letter, you haven't prayed enough, you haven't contributed enough, you haven't studied enough, you haven't done this, you've failed over and over again. God says, I will enter into this relationship. Now, I'm not going to ignore reality. I'm not going to ignore my feelings. I'm not going to ignore my commandments. But I'm going to, nevertheless, fill in the gaps. I got you covered. Because you're mine. This is my vow. I betroth you to me forever, and I betroth you to me in righteousness. So not only is it foreverness and righteousness, but notice thirdly, a vow of judgment. Justice. I betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. Now we say, what is this? In the midst of all these great encouraging words, all these great vows, here's judgment, because we typically think of judgment, we think of it in the negative. So we seem, it seems to be a misplaced word. But if we think of Psalm 68.5, or we think of Psalm, I think it's 94, and we read of the Lord, uh, who's referred to as the widow's judge, that's one way to see this. Not that he's going to condemn the widow, but he's going to defend her. He's going to, he's going to protect her, and he's actually going to repay all evildoers who've done her wrong. So, it's like he says to this weak wife, I, I'm going to defend you. All those who disparage and oppress you, I will repay. That's one meaning. There's another meaning here. It's likely the primary meaning. It's something like this. It's, it's judgment that has to do with careful deliberation. Careful deliberation. And this is important because we all know as the people of God that we've entered into a marriage covenant. Meaning if you're really, truly, practically married, right? You enter into a, 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 a covenantal agreement. And in your betrothal or in your engagement, you're judging whether or not you're going to count the cost to be married to this individual. And some people who don't count the cost, they want to escape as they're not long into this marriage covenant. Oh, I didn't really know him. I didn't really know her. I didn't really consider this. I didn't really consider that. But the Lord is saying, my commitment to this marriage is not something hasty. It's not spur-of-the-moment kind of idea. It's not a shoot, shoot from the hip kind of decision. Oh, I've weighed it all. I've judged it all. I'm not going to cut out. I betroth you to me in justice. In other words, I know everything about you. I've considered it all. I know where you come from. I know where you've been. I know your history. I know your innermost thoughts. I know your secret sins. I know your idolatries. I know your adulteries. I know every moment of every waking hour and every sleeping hour of your life. 
because I'm sovereign. I've gathered all of my information. I've examined it inside and out. And guess what? You're not worthy. None of y'all, meaning anyone in the world, are worthy. But nevertheless, I betroth you to me forever in justice. I've considered it all. Divorce is not an option. I enter in with full knowledge of the facts regarding every intimate detail of you in your life. This is my covenant. It's forever. It's in righteousness. It's in justice. Fourthly, it's a vow of steadfast love. Now, if you were with us through our Old Testament studies of Jonah and Ruth, you remember that term hesed, steadfast love of God? particularly with uh, uh, Naomi in the book of Ruth. And she praised the covenant kindness of God. She praised the loving kindness of God. Naomi, who lost her husband, who lost her two sons, who left Moab and went back to her homeland only to enter into the midst of famine. And Naomi said, after Ruth met Boaz by the providential hand and grace of God, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has said, same word, has not forsaken the living or the dead. So here's Naomi in the midst of all of her losses. She begins to see once again the sovereign work and sovereign framework of God working out his providential love and care in her life intimately and individually. And she praises his loving kindness. So God says to Israel, the covenant breaker, I will keep covenant by way of my steadfast love, by way of hesed. You see this in Psalm 119.76. You see this in Isaiah 63.7. So the word translated steadfast love is not a, a practical, mere intellectual kind of love. It's very emotional. It's spoken of with great affection, filled with gentleness, tenderness, sweetness. In other words, these are the most affectionate words that a husband could have for a wife. And here's the Lord speaking of his covenant people. And you're in mind here, as you'll see. So here's God pointing out what's good rather than to focus on what's evil within his people. And this is an evil people. We are an evil people. But by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's one of the evidences of his steadfast love. In other words, he covers our faults. He goes out of his way to point out the fruit, to point out the good. And that's why in 1 Peter, beloved, we are called to, above all, love one another with a sincere love because love covers what? A multitude of sins. It means this. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's like taking a big old blanket when someone offends you or someone's mean to you or they backbite you and you just take a blanket and you throw it over top of their exposed sin. It covers a multitude of sins. It's quoted from Proverbs 10, 12. Now, this does not rule out the discipline of our brother and sister within the church. We're not to overlook sin, but we're always to be ready to to forgive insults, unkindness, because of his steadfast love for us. 
And that's one of the fruits of his said steadfast love. He goes out of his way to point out the good. Listen to Jeremiah Burroughs. He says this, quote, If you're aiming at serving Christ, though there be a hundred weaknesses in your action, if there be but one thing good, all my weaknesses are passed by and that one good thing is taken notice of, end quote. Okay, now there is no good thing in unbelievers, beloved. Zero. The only good that is anyone are those who are in Christ because the only good thing in me is Christ in me. That's it. That's where fruit is produced from that abiding relationship in Jesus. You remember Sarah, wife of Abraham? God promised her a son in her old age and she laughed. Therefore, they named him Isaac, which means laughter. She doubted the promise of God. She, she pressed her husband to sleep with her maidservant. <laughs> in order to have a child, which she th- didn't think God would deliver. Now, there's not a lot of testimony in our minds as to the, the, the faithfulness of that woman, right? Not on the surface. But when we get to the New Testament, look at what we read. First Peter 3, it says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she's mentioned here in the positive. So he points out the inner beauty of this woman, her submission, her character, her her loyalty and modesty, and he brings it out by way of the divinely inspired word of God. In other words, it's not as though God pretends to see, beloved. Some Christians, let's face it, there's not a lot of fruit in their lives. You've got to lift the branches, man. You've got to really look. <clears throat> right? God reveals it. It's there. This is his bride. This is simply how God sees his bride. He sees her with steadfast love. All those who are in his son, he sees with a steadfast love. Notice vow number five. It's a vow of mercy. Now, when we we begin to compare God's covenant kindness with our failures and with our faults, like my friend's letter, as believers, the first thing that we ought to recognize, because we do fall short and will never live up to a standard of perfection, we have to lean on Christ who, who lived it out for us, right? When we realize our failings, we understand something of his mercy. His great and mighty mercy. We understand this covenantal, merciful, almighty Savior. So God's wedding gift to his people, both in Hosea's day as well as in ours, is that of mercy. Getting what we don't deserve. What do we deserve? Judgment, wrath, and hell. Thank you but he provides mercy. I mean, after all, does God require an on-fire heart to be his servant? Does God require as a prerequisite someone who is that zealous Christian who everywhere you look, it's just everything's praise the Lord. They serve everywhere you go. They're evangelistic. Their kids are perfect almost. I met, I met a woman and a man, this, they have nine kids. I've never seen better, well-behaved children in all my life. It is quite amazing. 
Only by grace, man. The only, only other two perfect kids I've seen close to that are my own kids. It's amazing. <laughs> Amen. You, you need to raise nine kids just so obedient with their little Bibles. I saw them all sitting there. They're just opening the Bible. That's mercy. It's grace. They actually help other families raise their kids in obedience. They do. That's their ministry. It's great. So anyway, here's five elements of this dowry. Okay, historically, that's what the man would provide for the bride, was a five-sided dowry. What we see here is a six-sided dowry. I am going to betroth you to me in steadfast love. I'm going to betroth you to me in mercy. And in addition to these five, verse 20, we see a vow of faithfulness. Faithfulness. He looked at his bride, knowing that she's fickle, knowing that she'd been unfaithful, knowing that she runs sometimes hot, sometimes cold, knowing that she worshiped Baal in place of the Almighty. He says, I will be faithful. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. You've been hard-hearted, I'll be merciful. You've been foolish, I'm wise. You've been unrighteous, I am forever righteous. You have been separated from me, but I'm committed. Faithfulness here denotes dependability, fidelity, purity, loyalty, good faith, who's so patient. It's like Forrest Gump. And the love of his life. You remember her? What was her name? Jenny. You remember Jenny? She was on course to do her thing, her way, to, a plea, to please every sinful affection. And where was, uh, uh, what's his name? I'm thinking Homer. Forrest. Waiting. Jenny, I love you. She said, you don't know what love is. Reality says he did know what love was. And he waited. And in the end, he goes, I know what love is. <laughs> he waited. <laughs> and she shows up and has AIDS, and he marries her. And she dies. Every time I see that movie, I think of the redeeming love of God and his, un, his forever faithful, unwaning love and commitment to sinners like me. You see, that's why I preach with passion, man. People have asked me, why do you preach with such passion? I never know what their motive is behind the question. If it's like, man, why do you preach with such passion? Or, why do you preach with such passion? (laughs) If someone once came and said, anyone with that much passion has a problem, so be it. Let me tell you, I preach with passion because I believe this and I'm trying to convince myself as much as I am trying to convince you of the eternal truth of God. Don't think for a minute I'm just preaching at you. I'm preaching to me, through me, and unto you. Amen? That's why preachers preach. We're as desperate for mercy and grace as everybody else. Probably even more. I'm more desperately needy for grace and mercy. It's faithful. 
See, it's only, it's only Christ for whom it can be said, if we are faithless, he nevertheless remains what? Faithful. Faithful. Faithful is word, a link to the word amen. We end our prayers with amen. Amen, amen. So be it. God is faithful. He's firm. He is the solid rock of our salvation. And he fulfills every promise. So the entire context of Hosea is simply a great contrast, beloved. The faithlessness of God's people compared to his faithfulness. Seeing how unpredictable, undependable, unreliable, fickle, faint-hearted, adulteresses that we are compared to his ever-faithfulness, his loyalty, his stability, his dependability, his uprightness, his holiness. His love never wanes. Ours does. But as part of this covenant, he holds his own to the end, as you'll see. And we'll show you how he does that in a minute. He cannot break his promise. So this, beloved, this text is as much as it is, is as much for you as it was for national Israel. Don't just stick this to national Israel. This is for you this moment. I'll prove that in a minute as well. <clears throat> By pointing you to the text, which proves itself. Paul quotes two passages from Hosea to support your inclusion into this promise. Romans chapter 9, verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be be called sons of the living God. Excuse me. He just was quoting there, uh, Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to verse 10 of chapter 1. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. That's you. That's me. So how can we be called as people? How is it possible for us to be called the beloved God, the beloved children of God, sons of the living God? How can anyone be called sons of the living God? I mean, after all, let's think about it. God draws this wandering, wavering people to himself, and he says, I covenant with you. I'll never let you go. But look, marriage is marriage, right? Is God going to marry to himself a, a whore? That's what the Bible calls her. And just let her keep whoring? No. No. He upholds both sides of the covenant. And look at how he does it. Turn back in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with, her, with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their what? Husband, declares the Lord. 
He promises to make a new covenant with guilty, adulterous people just like me, just like you. And those he calls, they will participate in this eternal six-sided bride price. That's the promise. He's betrothed us forever. And God upholds both sides of the covenant. How does he do that? Notice verse 34. Verse 33. But... This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity I will remember their sin no more I discovered last time having already preached through this and studied this whenever it was I noticed the six I wills of God parallel the six sided dowry of Hosea I was blown away last night when I noticed it notice I will make a covenant with them I will make the covenant with the house of Israel. That's foreverness. That's the vow of foreverness. I will put my law within them. That's the vow of righteousness. I will write it on their hearts. That's the vow of justice. I will be their God. They will be my people. That's his said. That's his vow of loving kindness. In verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity. That's the vow of mercy. And in, in sixth, I will remember their sin no more. That is his vow of faithfulness. As far as the east is from the west, so are your sins removed. Buried in the depths of the sea. I hope you're as excited about that as I was and am. This is a sign of, Jeremiah 31, this is a new nature found in every believing heart of every woman, of every man who's a recipient of this covenant for which he holds up both sides. He wills you to do his will. He transforms you to love his law and he transforms you as a recipient of grace to love that law so you're always looking to the glorious law, loving the law like the psalmist but always driven back to the cross to Christ who fulfilled the law. Our desires become God's desires. Do you know that sovereign work within your heart this morning? Are you personally, as you sit here, a recipient of this sovereign, regenerating work of Almighty God that has transformed your will to His? Amen. If not, today's the day. If not, forget about what you know about the truth up here. The question is, has it made it to here? Have you received the glorious work of this covenantal promise of Almighty God? He establishes it. He calls you. He transforms you. And he creates you to be one of his own. He turns a gomer to a pure bride. That's grace. He takes an unclean harlot to himself. No longer sees her as repulsive. 
but pure. Do you know this work? So Jesus Christ, our groom, our faithful husband, our Lord, our Savior, is the one who paid this six-sided dowry and he paid it to the Father. Jesus is the groom who pays the Father to buy you. You're a purchased possession. So may we not, beloved, as covenant children of God, as little gomers who've been made as white as snow, may we not, beloved, ever give the world reason to believe if they ever come through these doors to this memorial service and see us sitting in the front row come up and go, I didn't know you were married. All I know of you is your lover. So like Gomer, we can chase after other loves. Power, pleasure, money, recognition, fame. That's the temptation. It'll always be there. It can be very seductive. But we want, in response to what he's provided, beloved, is to be loyal to him. Amen. We need his grace to do that. And all the grace you'll ever need is found right here in this six-sided dowry. Reference it often then you'll know that you're living in response to what he's already provided. Amen. If your love is waning this morning for the one who prayed, paid the bride price, today's the day. Return to your first love. Return to your first love because his love for you never wanes and he'll be quick and ready to wash you, to cleanse you, and to strengthen you to endure. Amen. If you're one who has never been a recipient of this covenant grace of Almighty God, please see me afterwards because I'd love to assist you in knowing the gospel with absolute clarity if you were at all shady about this glorious truth and this living relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we again thank you as in always needy people, while at the same time in always grateful people for the grace provided to us through your Son. As we stand here, Lord, as, as, as a purchased possession, understanding something of the, the price that was paid, we also know that it will take eternity for us to even begin to grasp the magnitude of that price which is to grasp our Savior in his eternality, which is impossible. So we thank you for the revelatory truth that's been granted to us in Christ. I pray that you'll bless your people here this morning. Strengthen them. Strengthen us as a loyal people who are recipients of your loyalty, of your faithfulness, for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.